1: to the Explaining History podcast and today I want to talk about the experience of black Americans in the USA in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War and the effect that the war had had on them socially, culturally, politically and in terms of the civil rights struggle. Now, it's the view of uh, James Patterson, uh, author of Grand Expectations, the uh, chapter of the Oxford History of the United States that runs from 1945 to 74, that uh, by 1945, the condition of uh, life in America for black Americans on average had improved. This was in part due to the war and in part due to long-term economic changes happening in the Deep South where the majority of black people had lived since the end of slavery in 1865. The South had been mechanised, or the cotton industry in the South uh, had been mechanised by the early 1940s which meant that large numbers of farm labourers were unemployed, and this was part of the explanation as to why there was a huge migration during the Second World War from south to north. This has obviously already happened once during the First World War, but the uh, number of people moving, and there were a large number of white people that moved as well, from uh, south to north created this dramatic, uh, dramatic demographic shift. During the 1950s, another 1.5 million black people would leave the South to join family members already in the North and to escape the poverty and the increased violence that accompanied the intensifying civil rights struggle. And in general, black Americans began to be Uh, Economically occupied far more in industry than in agriculture, the numbers of black Americans who wound up working in agriculture uh, between 1939 and 1945 uh, increased by 700,000. Starting in 1939, uh, 500,000, or thereabouts, black Americans were involved in manufacturing. And by the end of the war, it was 1.2 million. The number of women who worked as domestic souls, um, um, domestic servants, dramatically declined as well. Seventy-two percent of black women in 1939 worked in service. 48 percent did at the end of the war. And that itself has something to do with new opportunities opening up for black American women. But it's also got to do with a change in expectations. This um, highly unattractive role, um, highly servile role, which was only ever really carried out by black American women as a necessity, not as a desirable um, employment at all, suddenly goes into nosedive during the war because there are obviously other options. Amongst the professions, amongst the white-collar roles, black people by the late 1940s are starting to make a very small appearance. In 1944, for example, the normally white-dominated press corps uh, around the White House uh, sees a black reporter for the first time admitted, and in 1947 there uh, were a, a black journalists who were uh, uh, allowed into the Senate Press, press Gallery. Uh, not to suggest that there weren't black journalists prior to this. There was a rich and thriving uh, journalism, black journalism, in places like Pittsburgh, in places like Harlem, and some of the most interesting and uh, better read newspapers of the period. The Pittsburgh Courier being the classic example, contributed immensely to Black American society. To American culture and to a sense of black American uh, community and politics. In part, it was a patient civil rights work done during the Second World War, which had led to some of these achievements. Um, A. Philip Randolph, who was the head of the Sleeping Car Porter's Union, in 1941 had threatened a march on Washington, and he was, in 1963, one of the principal organisers of the famous March on Washington, which uh, resulted in Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. The March on Washington uh, was a threat to the federal government to act against discrimination in the army and in public contracted Employment, i.e. the arms industry and war production, there were notable examples of strikes in shipyards in Georgia where black workers demanded the same rights as white workers, i.e. the same access to skilled employment, better paid skilled employment and training on jobs such as welding and electrics and and that kind of thing. White trade unions liked to ensure that their members had a monopoly on the best types of work, skilled work, um, that was better paid. Roosevelt, who certainly doesn't need industrial unrest in America during a war being fought against a racist, fascist power, um, an uh, industrial unrest based on racial discrimination um, issues. An executive order as preventing discrimination in the oil production industries and establishes the Fair Employment Practices Commission to enforce these uh, enforces this order. Um, this there is wide evasion of the order as employers and workers, white employers and workers, that is. Found all sorts of strategies and tactics to get round it and to keep black workers in their place. And the fact that this was the case, the fact that there was um, an effort to undermine presidential orders at a time of war, a war that can be interpreted as a struggle for national survival, goes on to show you the the deep importance that white people, privileged elites in uh, labour and industry attached to discrimination, to ensuring that skilled black labour didn't emerge within the workforce. In areas where there was high competition between white workers and lower paid black workers, the idea of uh, white soldiers returning home from the war to find a skilled black competition for their jobs was in utterly unpalatable uh, to the existing racist hierarchy. Um, this is not just in the southern states either, unless we kind of target them um, to the exclusion of, of everywhere else. And it would have presented an existential challenge to, the, to white control of... The economy, which had been the underpinning of discrimination since 1865, there seemed little point in prevailing over Nazism, Italian Fascism, and Japanese imperialism, if one was to be uh, defeated on the home front. So the thinking went. But it was these kinds of struggles during the war that led to a more militant kind of black activism emerging. I say militant is nothing. Uh, on the scale of and the uh, level of activism in the late 60s, early 70s, but certainly uh, there was a a greater sense of organisation and purpose that the war, uh, the conditions of the war kind of engender. The um, activism of Philip Randolph led to the Pittsburgh Courier uh, demanding the double V campaign, victory over fascism and imperialism abroad and over racism at home. The war, in the eyes of many black political activists, had presented them with an historic opportunity, as wars very often do, to reshape the political and social landscape in order to bring about progressive change. One activist Roy Wilkins, an NAACP leader, Um, wrote in 1942 to one of his contemporaries, It is a plain fact that no Negro leader with a constituency can face his members today and ask for full support for the war in light of the atmosphere the government has created. So the NAACP was only really as strong and as willing to be uh, compromising as its membership would allow. And a new sense of determination uh, amongst black people and uh, a new sense of of anger and resentment uh, about the treatment of black people manifested itself in the membership of things like the the NAACP. In 1935, it had a membership of 50,000, and by 1945, it had a membership of nearly 10 times that, of 450,000. In, the, in 1944, uh, the sociologist uh, Gunnar Myrdal wrote an influential text on discrimination and racism in America, called it An American Dilemma. The book was uh, a wide-reaching study of race relations in America. And he thought in it that the dilemma in question stemmed from um, a paradox within American history, um, that the, uh, the the conflict between the forces of democracy and equality and the um, entrenched force of racial injustice in America um, would meet each other at a, an uncompromising Impasse. Meyer Dahl was by and large optimistic about America, about the Constitution and the institutions that uh, governed America, and believed that these would have the power to overcome prejudice. He said that um, black Americans had changed. Um, He said that they could no longer be thought of as a patient, submissive majority. They will continue to become less well accommodated. A lot of this is kind of quite antiquated and sort of slightly patronizing, dare you say, even offensive language um, that was based in um, the assumptions of the time. Um, And whilst My was able to see that. The black community in America had become more politicised and more active. The idea of the patient, submissive Negro, inverted commas, that had um, always existed in the imaginations of um, privileged white Americans was clearly still there. Myrdal was correct in his prediction that white people would uh, oppose change, Um, not all, obviously. Um, the, he said that the white man can humiliate the negro, he can thwart his ambitions, he can starve him. But white people, in my view, did not have the moral stamina to make the negro's subjugation legal and approved by society.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds
1: Against that stands not only the Constitution and the laws which could be changed, but also the American creed, which is firmly rooted in the Americans' hearts. Now, actually, whilst a lot of this is kind of quite romantic and, shall we say, slightly unscientific language, these are the sorts of things that Martin Luther King actually believed. He thought that Christianity, liberal democracy, and the creed of freedom... Uh, that seems to run through all uh, American uh, discourses and ideas about uh, American identity would prevail, and that white Americans, when presented with the reality through the new medium of television in the 1950s of discrimination in the South, of uh, dogs being set on school children, uh, of burning buses, would see... This ugly truth has been completely incompatible with the way in which they like to conceive of the USA itself as a, a noble mission in the world, and that this would be the key to bringing about fundamental change. And much of what Martin Luther King does is try to have a conversation with white America, and a and this is partly why he effectively cloaks his um, rhetoric in highly biblical terms. I mean, obviously he's um, a church minister, uh, uh, but he knows that the sort of language that he selects is highly effective in presenting a kind of a case of Christian morality to uh, the rest of the United States. Myrdal was wrong in some respects. He didn't realise how entrenched white racism was, and how difficult a uh, institution, a concept, a kind of a cultural affiliation it was would be to to shift. The immense power of uh, white uh, racism in the South was going to persist, and arguably, not arguably, actually, still does. The book also is littered with a variety of um, unpleasant stereotypes and -and out-and-out racist uh, observations, um, for example. In practically all its divergences, American Negro culture is not something independent of general American culture. It is a distorted development or a pathological condition of the general American culture. The idea, therefore... That Myadal was putting forward was that um, the subculture, as he saw it, of black American life was a a divergence from a a proper Americanness, and that proper Americanness, which was white Americanness, would at some point obviously have to intervene and correct the situation, and you know, in a paternalist manner to uh, raise the condition of, uh, of the Negro. Um, he said it is to the advantage of American Negroes as individuals and as a group to become assimilated into American culture to acquire the traits held in esteem by, the do- by dominant white Americans and this is obviously how black Americans would be able to pursue the American dream by really shedding themselves of their blackness and becoming like white people. Uh, I mean, the level of uh, ignorance that that statement has in order to um, kind of, has to have in order to perpetuate itself to us here in the 21st century, I guess is quite breathtaking, but it is at the time written by uh, an educated member of the Intellectual elite, somebody who exists within the academy, and somebody who um, viewed this as being ultimately uh, a kind of a, so, a peer-reviewed bit of social science. And so, what we're looking at here really are the dominant assumptions, not of racist the racist South, but of liberal white America. So, where liberal white America was kind of starting from was Gunmayadal and that that sort of direction of thinking. So even even the supposed allies of the civil rights movement uh, amongst white, liberal white people, there were still all sorts of entrenched prejudices. This book was given unsparing praise throughout much of the 1940s, and it was only until there were more uh, precise political dissections of it in the 1960s that it really starts to be discredited. W.B. Du Bois um, said of it, it was a monumental and unrivaled study. Black Americans had distinguished themselves in the armed services during the war. One in ten Americans were black, but 16% of the army was black. And a million soldiers uh, a million black soldiers had fought uh, between 1942 and forty-five. I say soldiers, obviously uh, sailors and airmen as well. The Navy had only taken on, say, um, black sailors... Uh, to serve as mess attendants and in uh, other menial roles. It was Dorby Miller, a black American mess attendant um, who had uh, taken to the anti-aircraft guns, I think, on the USS West Virginia at Pearl Harbour and was decorated later for his bravery, though sadly he, he died um, a year or so later in the war. The army took in black private soldiers but refused to train them to the level of officer. It's assumed that they were uh, either cowardly or lazy or ill-disciplined or whatever other uh, ignorant racist stereotype one could attach to military service, and they thought that black soldiers wouldn't fight under fire. The Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, said that um, blacks should serve under white officers because leadership is not embedded in the Negro race yet, and today uh, to make commissioned officers lead men into battle, coloured men, um, is only a work of disaster to both. Even in the politicians that didn't identify themselves with uh, racist views, this term yet is always there that well at some point in the future, surely yeah, black Americans would change then culturally and um, politically and socially, black Americans would change, and there would one day um, be at a level of education and discipline, like I' can't think where they can do these things. But right now it's not a good idea. And the only thing that distinguishes them uh, between, between them and the uh, extreme uh, racist segregationists of the South is this word yet, it's the racist segregationists in the south who would argue and at no point in the future is this possible or likely or desirable and the uh, yet's in the north and the federal government are the ones who will say well at some point in the future but the idea there's no specific date at which this will actually occur 1944 is the kind of the, the key year of change on this topic the uh, army, desperate for manpower during the Battle of the Bulge, uh, began to use black soldiers um, And in, a, in an absolute crisis and started to see that they actually were extremely good at fighting. The Navy began to integrate units, and I think in the Pacific there were black American marines by 1944. General George Marshall was quoted as saying, My God, my God. I don't know what to do about this race question in the army. I tell you frankly, it's the worst thing we have to deal with. We're getting a situation on our hands that may explode right in our faces. The idea of desegregating the army was uh, politically uh, impossible at, at the time, though Truman manages it by 1948. But it had ceased to be a situation that could be ignored and swept under the carpet. And again, this shows you what, it, what a world war does in terms of the development of political pressures for change. And there is a a classic quote from a a black American uh, corporal um, from the South who said in 1945 uh, when he was uh, um, demobilised, I spent four years in the army to free a bunch of Dutchmen and Frenchmen. I'm hanged if I'm going to let the Alabama version of the Germans kick me around when I get home. No sorry, Bob. I went into the army a nigger, and I'm coming out a man. And when you imagine that seventy percent of black people in the South lived in poverty by 1945, that the the world that America had won by 1945, where um, fifty percent of the world's wealth when came to uh, five percent of the world's population, and 70% of black Americans still lived in poverty in 1945 in the South, there could be no justification, no argument, no logic other than the existence of discrimination to explain that. Uh, The world in which black Americans existed was segregated. um, Public places, beaches, trains, uh, waiting rooms, restaurants, hotels, restrooms, drinking fountains, schools, churches... Parks, beaches, every aspect of life outside the home was in some way uh, segregated, and the black American experience was one of inferiority. And this, in the minds of white southerners and many white northerners as well, was simply the nature of the world. This is simply um, a logic that black and white Americans were entitled to superiority. Um, James Eastland, the Mississippi senator, who became a uh, leading light of white racism, um, expressed this um, when he made a wartime speech against the Federal Employment Practices Commission. He said... What the people of this country must realise is the white race is a superior race, and the Negro race is an inferior race. To which Mayadal added, Southern whites do not see the handwriting on the wall. They do not study the impending changes. They live again in the pathetic illusion that the matter is settled. They do not care to have any constructive policies to meet the trends. So this is fascinating. White Americans, at the end of the Second World War, um, southern white Americans particularly, believed that the world of racial discrimination was a fixed one. um, Despite having lived through some of the most titanic changes that human beings had ever seen, from um, the dropping of the atomic bomb particularly, The idea that black Americans were unlikely to challenge their situation because a natural order already existed, this was simply common sense in the South. Now, if you look at that as a starting point from understanding the civil rights struggle, then everything else you look at from the Montgomery uh, boycott all the way through to um, the Greensboro counter-protests and Selma Well, it makes uh, a lot more sense, um, a way in which white Americans responded to these challenges. The order of the world, as they understood it to be, was being upturned, and they must do everything to struggle against it. Um, Okay. well, I hope you found that useful, and I hope to be dipping in more to the civil rights movement in the near future. Um, If you can, give us a good uh, write-up on iTunes. That would be terrific and um, a, a, a review as well. Um, and also, if it's possible, check in our Patreon page, and if you can make a donation, we much obliged. Thanks very much. Catch you on the next podcast. Bye-bye.